In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And today we've got some exciting topics. We will be starting off by talking about coronavirus, but unlike our normal kind of survey coverage, today we're mostly going to be focusing in on the question of whether we should be considering reopening schools. Um, so kind of try to delve into that a little bit deeper. And then we'll be talking about updates on uh, police violence and protests throughout the nation um, because it's been it's fallen a little bit off the radar we feel so we want to make sure that it uh, doesn't get forgotten and um, finally we'll be talking about um, the uh, national coin shortage and the question of whether it makes sense to move towards a cashless economy for the united states Hmm. we got a nice full docket tonight yeah Uh, i'm i'm excited i while I was doing research on this, I came to some conclusions that I wasn't sure that I was going to come to. So I, I'm definitely excited to see what you think about it. Yeah, that's a good thing, right? Like if we, yeah. didn't, if we already knew everything, we would have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So right. uh, yeah, to get started, uh, we'll just do a quick update on the numbers um, before we dive into kind of the discussion of reopening schools. So first off, um, at this point, we have 14.8 million cases worldwide, which is a uh, 12% increase over last week, which is uh, slightly slower of an increase than than the week before, which is good. Um, And we have 611,000 deaths total, which is a 6% increase over last week, which is, you know, the same week over week increase. Um, And we have uh, 8.8 million recovered, which is 59% of total cases recovered, uh, which is about the same rate as the week before. So, so at this point, you know, the case increase and the recovery rate increase are about the same. So in the U.S., we have 3.95 million cases, um, which is an increase from 3.5 million the week before, or around a 13% increase. So that's actually down... Um, from a 17% increase week over week from the previous week. So, um, you know, it's not that much to be excited about that we're down to a 13% increase week over week <laughs> instead of 17. Um, but I guess it's going in the right direction. I, I don't know if two data points really make a trend, but we can hope. And then we're at 144,000 deaths or about a 4, 4% increase over the previous week, which is, again, like the same rate of death um, that we've seen. And then um, we're at 1.8 million recovered at this point, which is now up to 46% recovered versus 43% last week. Um, So, you know, a little bit of a increased rate of recovery um, happening faster than cases are spreading for this week. So, you know, not great news. um, And I'm sure we will backslide at some point, but um, every week that we can slow the spread of the disease is a success well yeah is better than a week when we didn't (laughs) slow the spread of yeah i wouldn't call it a win but (laughs) yeah it's something it's something yeah Uh, i i'm wondering how many people 
are going to need to be infected with this and how many people are going to need to die of this before people stop referring to it as a hoax or as overblown. <laughs> like I, I, I keep seeing people referring to other diseases, comparing it to other diseases like, mm-hmm. like swine flu, which did not kill even close to as many people as COVID or uh, the Ebola outbreak mm-hmm. yeah. in the United States, which killed maybe like what, two, four people, something like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't understand how people can be looking at these numbers and still think, yeah, you know, total liberal hoax, totally overblown. They're just, they're just trying to fear monger us. Yeah. It's like more people have died than in the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. And we passed that trend, like that milestone, months ago. Yeah. At this so, point, at this point, we've got 2,000 cases, and then coronavirus will be more deadly in the past few months than a stroke is in an average year. Ouch. Which makes it the, like, it'll make it the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. Wow. And, and I, think, I think to your point, like, part of it is that it's not that visceral. We're not seeing, not only are we not like necessarily seeing a bunch of people that we know die from it, but all, but more importantly, I think is like what changed the tone around the Vietnam war was seeing the Vietnam war. What makes Ebola so scary is how it kills you. Yeah. And like, I feel like when people think, Oh, you know, you get a cough. They think of, they think of, you know, a normal coronavirus, which is like, the yeah. sniffles or whatever, as opposed to literally drowning. Well, the fact that a lot of people who get COVID-19 are either asymptomatic or have very minor cases mm-hmm. is part of what makes it, you know, as Dr. Fauci calls it, a perfect storm. Yeah. Because you have people that have it that don't know they have it, mm-hmm. that spread it to someone who could potentially die from it. Yeah. So it has a high enough mortality rate to where we cannot afford to just reopen everything to not take any precautions. But at the same time, it's low enough to where people aren't taking it as seriously. And Mm -hmm. the asymptomatic rate is high enough to where a lot of people just unknowingly spread it. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing that's growing, getting more and more scary to me, like literally personally is that we don't know what, the long-term effects of this disease are, even for people that have relatively minor cases. Because what we have seen is that it does weird stuff that we wouldn't expect from a disease like this. Like it increases some people's chance of stroke. It is leading some people to liver and kidney failure. And it's, that's like a pretty weird, unexpected, non-intuitive thing and so you wonder for young people that maybe have a crappy case but aren't not a lethal one, um, you know, just this is these are thoughts I'm having personally is like if I were to contract this, how would this shave off years of my life down the yeah. road? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a really good point. And another concern that I have, and this is something that I talked to my dad about recently, um, even if we do manage to get a vaccine for this, or even if we do eventually get to the point where we have herd immunity, Mm -hmm. the nature of coronaviruses in general are that they mutate very quickly. Yeah. So it is completely possible that even if you have had the virus, 
it's possible that within another six months, it will have mutated to the point where you could get it again. Totally. You know, that's why you've had different versions of the common cold at several points throughout your life, even though they're all similar viruses and they have similar symptoms, mm -hmm. they mutate. And yeah. that's why you can catch it again. Yeah. And the hope, and you see this with, we've seen this in the past with some other viruses, is that as the disease spreads and mutates, it becomes less lethal because that, if, if you think about what, you know, the goal, if a virus has a goal, the design of a virus is for it to spread and replicate. It's not yeah. trying to kill you. It's just trying to spread. And so often what happens is over time, a new virus will become less lethal because it helps it spread and replicate. Um, but that's not a guarantee. And how, and to your point earlier, Nathan, like how many people would have to be infected for that kind of thing to happen if it ever does? Yeah. So the, the, the thing here is like, and, and a theme that we've tried to hammer home this whole time, and we'll probably talk about more today with opening schools, is the amount of uncertainty. And pretending like we know things that we don't know, and trying to tailor a response to that is, you know, a false narrative that's, that's getting in people's way. And it's getting in people's way from making good decisions. Like the whole argument about allowing people, allowing places to reopen because people will take care of themselves is predicated on people having good information to inform their judgments, even if we fully trust their, trust their judgments. But the information is uncertain and changing a lot. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so actually even getting well-informed judgments is hard. And one issue that that also creates is that you have a lot of people that don't know what they're talking about throwing out random predictions. And mm. you've probably heard the old adage of a broken clock is right twice a day. So instances in which an expert is wrong, but you know, it's because they didn't have access to enough information yet. We didn't have access to enough information yet because this is a novel coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And someone who is just making some random ass prediction based on nothing on the internet happens to be right. Yeah. There's this assumption that that means the expert must be less credible and this random person must be more credible. But the thing is, the way you judge a credible source is not necessarily with anecdotes of when they were right and someone else was wrong. It's with how they come to that conclusion. If there is a process that they follow that brings them to that conclusion that also adds in um, contingencies for information changing and thus conclusions changing, then that makes them a more reliable source. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that those methods and processes lead to more re reliable predictions. You know, yeah. like you might get lucky once or twice, but in the limit, the person guessing is going to be only, you know, right or wrong, whatever the probability distribution is of a random guess versus someone who has a appropriate method for arriving at the truth being correct a higher proportion of the time. Yeah. So all of this brings us to one important question, which is, should we open schools in the fall? And there's definitely a lot to be said on this subject. Mm -hmm. And before we even get started, I would like to acknowledge a few things. It is important to point out that schools not being in session 
have had many detrimental effects on parents, especially parents uh, that are in so lower socioeconomic statuses, because a lot of them depend on school for childcare mm. while they're working. Uh, it's had detrimental effects on a lot of children. They're behind in their learning and their education. And that those are legitimate concerns. And those are things that we can't ignore. I do feel sometimes like there are people on the left that do create a little bit of a dichotomy, mm -hmm. which is kind of the nature of you know us living in a two-party system, a dichotomy of we don't want the schools to open because uh, of the virus. And that might be true, but what that means is that any arguments for reopening schools are illegitimate. Mm. And we shouldn't, we, we shouldn't fall into that dichotomy because there are yeah. many legitimate reasons why a lot of people are arguing for the reopening of schools. The important thing to do, though, is a cost-benefit analysis from as, an objective, from as objective as a point of view as possible. Yeah, so, exactly. So I, I would like to put in that caveat before we start talking about the research. So one thing like, that is helpful for framing these conversations is like, thinking about what would have to be true for us to want to open schools. Yeah. So like one thing is that children, we, we would probably for us to open schools and not reopen everything else. Like obviously if the coronavirus went away or if we had a vaccine or herd immunity, we would open schools. But given our current state, like children would have to be, you know, way less susceptible to the virus. It would have to be way less dangerous for our kids. Um, and we, it would have to be, you know, not as transmissible among our kids. And we would have to be able to open our schools in such a way that could protect our teachers from um, each other, as, you know, you can spread a virus easily among uh, adults and um, protect them from the level of transmissibility in kids. And ultimately, like, we'd want the risk to children to be zero. Um, but in a cost benefit analysis, you would probably put the risk to children at some level equal to or less than um, the risk of staying at home. And those risks can include things like abuse and, you know, non-reported domestic problems and things like that. Yeah. Lack of food, because often um, uh, school is a, a significant food source for kids. And as it stands, there is definitely some evidence to support what Michael says, or at least part of what Michael, like the, the defeasibility test that he just laid out. Mm -hmm. So it is absolutely true and documented that this disease is less severe among kids. And it is also true that we have detected less cases among kids. Mm -hmm. However, there are some important hypotheses to look at in explaining why that could be. And one of those hypotheses is that the reason why there are less cases among kids is because cases tend to be so much less severe among kids. And what that causes is less of a probability of kids going to the hospital and being tested. Mm -hmm. Because if they're asymptomatic or if it's super minor, then they're less likely to to spring for a test because it doesn't seem like they have it. On the other side of that, though, 
if they do have it, if they have been infected with it, even if they are asymptomatic, they can still spread it. Yeah. Which means that if you do send kids to school, you might not necessarily have an increase in rates among kids, or at least not a significant increase in rates among kids, but you might see more cases among their parents, among yeah. the people that they interact with, and definitely of teachers. And as, as we talked about last week, like a significant portion of teachers are in groups that would be at higher risk for this, right? Like over 65 or have health conditions that would put them at a higher risk of death when contracting coronavirus. And so the idea that we'd be able to send kids back to school and simply rely on um, the fact that they seem to be getting it less and less severely doesn't mean that we can be certain or even reasonably sure that they wouldn't increase the total rate of transmission in our society. And let's think about, you got to think about like what the variables are that go into transmission, right? Like a huge component of the transmissibility of a disease and among a certain population is the social dynamics of the population. What we know about kids is that especially young kids are terrible at social distancing. You know, they're like, they have no social control of any kind. And so like the idea that a kid is, you know, infected with coronavirus, feeling crappy is not going to go up and hug their teacher, give them like a gift or something and then sneeze on their face. Yeah. Seems pretty like that seems like an unlikely thing that we can really honestly expect from kids. Yeah. I, I, I love my nieces, but every time I go to visit them, they cough in my face and I'm like, cover your damn mouth. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like even when they're not sick, mm-hmm. you know, they just, they just look at me. It's like, uncle Nathan. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that's just, that's just how they behave. Another important hypothesis that has been made is that Kids, because of the fact that many of them have been taken out of schools, that that is one of the main reasons why the cases have been so much less. Mm -hmm. And in order to really look at that, in order to add credence to that theory, you would have to look at examples of either uh, countries that schools reopened quickly or even countries that never closed schools. And we actually do have an important case study Uh, in Sweden. So um, globalhealthwashington.edu compiled a study in which they looked at rates of transmission among kids in schools, and they found that in Sweden, which again, their whole approach, which we talked a little bit about on the pod, was, you know, just bull rush into it, and, you know, hopefully herd immunity will develop. Um... Surveys has shown that the antibody prevalence in children slash teenagers was 4.7% compared with 6.7% in adults age 20 to to, uh, 64 and 2.7% in adults ages uh, 65 to 70, which is a relatively high rate, which suggests that there might have been significant spread in schools Mm -hmm. because there is a higher rate of the antibodies among kids. And on top of that, another study from, uh, from South Korea, which was compiled, um, based on nearly, uh, 60,000 people. It was specifically looking at people that had, 
uh, contact with infected people. And they found that on average, 11.8% of household contacts tested positive for COVID-19. And for the people that lived with patients between the ages of 10 and 19, so people that would be going back to school, 18.6% tested positive for the virus within about 10 days after the initial case was detected. Mm. This was the highest transition rate among all the other groups studied. Now, it does specify that children that were younger than 10 did spread the virus at the lowest rate, but they did also stipulate that that could change if schools open. Mm. So we do have a study from uh, South Korea showing us that teens and tweens might actually be one of the highest transmitters of this disease. Mm -hmm. And if you start sending them back to school, that could have disastrous effects on their families. And the thing is, we are not the only country trying to answer this question. You know, like there are studies coming out of Australia and France, Denmark, um, Hong Kong, like so many people are trying to answer this question. And what we're seeing to Nathan's point to kind of summarize some of the studies that he mentioned is that the results are mixed, mixed enough on the transmissibility of this disease among kids that we should really think about the potential cost to our society of reopening schools. Now, again, like, you know, there are costs to keeping schools closed. You know, there's not necessarily someone to take care of the kid or if, if the parent is an essential worker and has to go work, especially if, you know, in the uh, increased um, unemployment benefits, which are set to run out, I think, this week or next, um, aren't renewed, you know, people will have to go out to work and necessarily there may not be people at home to watch the kids, but you know, the information is mixed enough that it's not obvious. It's not a slam dunk that we're going to be safe. We're going to be able to safely reopen our schools. And the idea that we should just, you know, bull rush this and, pretend like it's going to be fine because kids tend not to die so much from this disease, even though some do and some will, is instead of an approach that is, you know, meant to be targeted and specific, um, our government is trying to, at least, you know, Betsy DeVos and Trump and the Trump administration is trying to push schools into doing it and incentivizing schools into just doing it all at once in an unnuanced and untargeted and, and, and non-tested way. And Trump keeps claiming that the reason why a lot of people are very hesitant to send kids back to school, that a lot of people are criticizing him for wanting to send kids back to school, and a lot of uh, local school administrations are trying to push back at it, he's trying to make the argument that it's about him, that <laughs> people are trying to do that in order to politically hurt him. I hate to break it to you, Don, but not everything is about you. Yeah, seriously. I mean, the annoying thing is that th the most annoying thing is, is that if kids go back to school and it leads to a further explosion of cases of coronavirus, that's going to hurt him. <laughs> yeah, it's like, but, do yourself a favor, dude. 
if we do everything we can to stop the spread and hopefully try to get rid of this virus or at least try to uh, substantially flatten the curve or even get to the point that some other countries have gotten to where there are very few new cases, if we're able to do that as soon as possible, especially if we're able to do it before Election Day, that's going to help you, bro. Yeah. In fact, I, I will say this. If you had done a good job with this from the beginning, you would be sailing through to re-election. Like, if he had done a good job of preventing the spread of COVID-19, mm -hmm. if he had, if we were like where New Zealand is right now, where they have no new cases, if he had done that, he would have, he would get re-elected in a landslide. Like, it wouldn't even be close. No matter who he was running against, it wouldn't even be close. He would win. The fact that he's doing so badly politically right now is because of his response. The fact that he has done nothing. The fact that he has been failing in his response on every single level of this virus. Well, if we, if we know anything from Donald Trump's history, it's that no amount of poor results can get him to stop what he's used to doing. You know, like many failing businesses, no problem. People still loan me money. I'll still try to do that. Um, yeah. And you can see it in the the GOP recently put out a um, some information about a, an up, a new upcoming coronavirus stimulus bill um, that they're thinking about putting together. And um, under this plan, states would get money for schools, but only if they reopened. So their funding for schools to help them function and stay afloat would be explicitly tied to reopening. Um, and so instead, again, of like giving them the tools, the information they need to do it properly, providing governance and oversight and investing in an infrastructure to help schools do it properly, because let's be clear, reopening schools properly is going to cost a fair amount of money, a uh, according to the Association of School Business Officials International, um, on average, it's going to cost $1.78 million per school district um, in order to properly reopen with precautions like PPE and uh, disinfectant and things like that. And so, like, you know, if we want schools to do this, we can't just say, hey, we're going to pay you to reopen. Like... We need to like also give them the tools to get there. Wondering where all the states' rights advocates are right now. You know, <laughs> why 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 am I not seeing anybody posting about the Tenth Amendment on this one? Like why 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 am I not seeing any Republicans say things like, "You can't tell our schools what to do, federal government." <laughs> I mean, it's because they're not principled. It's not a principle. I mean, honestly, when it comes to states' rights. Elected Republicans, which I, I, I would like to be very distinctive with my language and specify the difference between elected Republicans and Republican voters, but elected Republicans, they don't have a principled stance on states' rights. They don't. Yeah. They completely turn on it whenever it's convenient, and they only use it in order to hamper progress when they can. But when it comes to trying to force school districts to bring kids back into school... So that the economy can, you know, look like it's functioning. Meanwhile, hacking itself off at the knees. <laughs> I guess, I guess then <laughs> states' rights just go right out the window. 
so anyway, yeah, just to sum up this section, it's like maybe, maybe it's a good idea to reopen schools, but we don't know. And the idea that we should just dump, jump in with both feet without the proper information or infrastructure just because we want the political move of, of looking like we're making progress. Like, this has been something that the administration has done through the whole pandemic. They've been trying to jump to the conclusion to make it seem like something is happening when they haven't done the steps to justify or earn the results that they're trying to manufacture. And, you know, there's a reason why we are significantly ahead of other countries in our case count um, and our deaths. I'm tired of winning. <laughs> so now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? Because life is like a box of chocolates. Mm. You never know what you're going to get. Sing it. Sing it, Forrest. But but I I don't really like chocolate that much, Michael. So I'm gonna <laughs> so I'm gonna give you tips instead. Yeah, gotcha. You skip the box, give tips, make the world yeah. a little bit of a better place, all that. Yeah. Sounds oh yeah, good. yeah, making the world a better place. I forgot about that one. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's also a reason. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just like a side reason, <laughs> aside from the chocolate thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mostly the chocolate thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? Our tip for good this week is to stop pretending that innocuous content on social media is courageous. Yeah. And, and so what we mean by that is like, I'm sure you've seen it. If you have, if you have, you know, anybody that's even remotely political in your timeline, I'm sure you've seen examples like this where they post something totally reasonable and innocuous and they say, you know, like an American flag or like, you know, Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, Pledge of Allegiance, <laughs> like taking kids out of cages. It Because it goes on both sides of the aisle. And it's, and it's like, I bet no one has the courage to repost this thing that I've posted. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, first off, it's annoying. Yeah. Like when I scroll through that, I just roll my eyes. But But another thing is that not only does it annoy people and turn people off to you, but... It's kind of problematic from the point of view of an activist. So think of it this way. If you are making the post purely about your own bravery for having that particular opinion, then you're not, you're not doing activism for the sake of actually helping people. You're doing it for the sake of making yourself feel better, mm -hmm. of making yourself feel more courageous. And that's not activism. Yeah, exactly. Also, like... Just from like a point of view of scarcity, like maybe scarcity is not a problem when you're you can post it literally to infinity on social media. But like you you are taking someone's focus and attention for an interaction on a specific thing. Why on earth would you post something that's like so devoid of information or argument or substance? It's just you know. And, and pretend like something's a controversy when it's not. I feel like that's the big thing. Like, I've seen this time and time again where you, where like, people try to gain credibility by pretending that something is controversial and, and try to discredit the other side by pretending something's controversial when it's not. And pretending, like, oh, really, like, you know, 
evil anti-American left-wingers are taking over the world, so no one's going to repost this American flag because, you know, they all are commies or whatever. But it's like, it's just like a weak, silly, dumb waste of a thing to do. And on both sides, it is just totally inane. So quit it. Just quit it. Yeah. And that's tips for good. Okay, so for this next segment, um, we wanted to refocus a bit on the um, protests about police brutality and on some of the issues that are going on there. I I don't know about you, Nathan, but something that I've noticed is the lack of updates on this. Like, I've got news alerts set up. I've got, I get notifications from multiple different sources and, you know, I am seeing very little about ongoing efforts to, you know, reform the police or protests or updates on these different cases. So we wanted Which, to just that provide was, that. That was one of my biggest fears with this because we had all of this momentum. We had all of these protests. We had all of these great propositions and great proposed reforms. And I was worried that it would just run its course like the standard outrage cycle and eventually people would stop caring. And it feels like America, the American public really does feel like it has a one-tracked mind sometimes mm. because when the protests started, it felt like everybody just forgot about COVID for a bit. Mm-hmm. And now that we're talking about COVID again, it feels like everybody just forgot about racism and, and police violence and stuff. Yeah. So that is that is very disheartening. It is. It is. But... We should still we should still spend some time talking about where we are with with those cases and with protests and police brutality in America. Totally. So where are we? Yeah. So initially, we'll just give a couple updates on kind of where the George Floyd um, proceedings are, and another update about Breonna Taylor has to, has two of the you know cases most centrally um, you know central as rallying points for some of these movements right now. So. Yeah. On George Floyd, um, so there's been some additional information that has come out about um, his interaction with the police. So a judge um, released some body camera footage from one of the police officers. Um, Basically, it's kind of what you would expect if, you know, you've been paying attention, which is he was pretty much totally complying, um, you know, not being, not resisting. He was apologetic and just trying to get through it safely. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not too surprising that that's the case because that seems to always be the case. Um, but you know, apart from that, there haven't been too many updates since, you know, um, the different officers involved have been charged. One thing we do know is that this is going to take a while. So at this point, the next hearing, is set for September 11th, and the the tentative trial date is set for March 8th, 2021. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, at this point, um, Quang, Lang, um, uh, who are two of the officers involved, are currently free on bond. Uh, Tao, who is another officer involved, is currently held with $750,000 bail, and all three of them are being charged with aiding and abetting Chauvin. Um, Derek Chauvin is currently being charged with second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter, um, and he's currently um, 
uh, in custody with a million dollars bail. Um, and so like, that's kind of the update right now. There's not too much actual movement on that case, uh, which, you know, kind of makes sense. The, the wheels of justice turn slowly. The criminal justice system is pretty slow and largely shut down, um, with coronavirus right now. Um, but the, you know, we do know that the Minneapolis police department, not long after the killing, um, you know, moved to try to, uh, make progress on defunding the Minneapolis PD. So still unclear kind of what that looks like, but they were one of the first kind of movers on significant police, uh, reform. So hopefully there's progress there in the near future. Yeah. And it is important to also bring up because I feel like a lot of activists don't spend enough time harping on this, um, which is once again, reminding people that when we talk about defund the police, we're not talking about the abolition of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're not even necessarily talking about the cutting of salaries of specific police officers. Now we might be talking about reducing the number of people on a police force, you know, potentially weeding out some of the bad cops, but what we're mainly talking about is a reallocation of funds to other services to, uh, for instance, to potentially social programs, which can reduce poverty and thus decrease the need of law enforcement to begin with, because we know that decreasing poverty decreases crime mm -hmm. and also putting money in different forms of de-escalation tactics or de-escalation jobs. So if a person has some type of uh, mental illness or um, mental disability, then sending in someone with a gun who is trained for like combat situations or trained for uh, overly uh, escalated situations might not be the best idea. You might want somebody who is an expert in psychology to try to de-escalate the situation. Mm -hmm. So just, just as a reminder, that's what we mean when we say defund the police, don't let people straw man and don't straw man yourself. Yeah. I've been, I've been seeing straw men on this topic from a lot of sources that have disappointed me. Like yeah. so many thinkers that I, tend to respect have been distract distracted by the words defund the police and decided, I guess, not to look deeper at what yeah. that tends to actually mean. Now it is, you know, it's not a single platform. It, it can mean yeah. a lot of things to a lot of different people, but the most common definitions are what Nathan laid out and the most reasonable ones. And so yeah. it seems like we should be, you know, discussing those proposals as opposed to, you know, defeating the easily defeatable straw man yeah. of yeah. a lawless society. <laughs> yeah. Which it's funny that that, that is the straw man that Trump has especially latched onto. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure a lot of people saw his insane Rose Garden speech mm -hmm. where first off, when you call Rose Garden speeches, they're not supposed to be political. Like yeah. they're not supposed to be overtly partisan. Um, but of course, that didn't stop Trump. He turned this into basically a campaign rally in which he not only claimed that Joe Biden supports defund the police, which he specifically said he didn't, but he also claimed that defund the police means the abolition of law enforcement. Yeah. So it was a straw man 
of a straw man. <laughs> like it was two different levels of straw man. And what I think is annoying is that again, like I, I talked a little bit about this before. It's that dichotomy where people that consider themselves to be conservatives are very quick to latch on to any criticism of the left as being a legitimate criticism. Yeah. And, and again, left, Leftists do it too. Mm -hmm. You know, people on the left do it too. Democrats do it too, where they they latch on to any um, criticism of the right as being a legitimate criticism. Yeah. But again, I say this to anybody who might be listening, whether you're right wing, left wing, libertarian, whatever. Learn what people are actually arguing for before you argue against them. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, if if you're yeah, if you can make up the arguments that your opponents are making, you're gonna win a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're gonna get nowhere. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you'll never convince anybody that they're wrong when you're arguing against a position that they don't hold. <laughs> you know. Yeah. See, in that regard, life is like Skyrim. If you try to attack a battle dummy, it's not going to increase your skills. Wow. That's profound. <laughs> you have no idea what I'm talking about. No, I have no idea. What you're <laughs> but it sounded like, it sounded like a straw man, but in Skyrim terms. <laughs> yeah, basically. So the other case that has been a, a, you know, a focal point for these protests is the case of Breonna Taylor. So as a reminder, um, about four months ago, uh, police broke into her apartment and, you know, without under a no-knock warrant, they didn't announce themselves when they, when they broke in. Um, they were looking for a drug dealer who was her ex-boyfriend um, who had already been taken into custody, um, and they were aware of that, and they broke in anyway. Um, and when her current boyfriend, Kenneth, fired with a legally possessed um, firearm in home defense. They fired into the apartment more than 20 times and killed Brianna with more than eight shots to her body. So at this point, four months later, um, the investigation is still ongoing with no arrests and no charges at all. At wow. this point, yeah, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. She was in her home. Yeah. Like, like what, a, what annoys me is the common trope that you see from a lot of white people is do you ever notice that people who aren't doing anything illegal don't get killed by the police? No, no, I don't notice that. Yeah. Because she was sitting in her own goddamn house. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Doing nothing. I think she was asleep merely like moments before. Um, yeah. And at this point in, in the city, uh, they have banned no-knock warrants, which is progress, and they're considering yes. doing that at the state level as well. Um, and one of the officers involved um, was actually fired, which is surprising, um, but he is appealing that, and um, the other officers involved are still on paid leave. So, Jackass, you should be lucky you're not being charged. No, I, I, exactly. Like, you're bitching about being fired? Yeah. Dude, count your blessings that you're not being charged yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so this has been one of the like one of the really upsetting cases, especially for people that are looking at the intersectionality of um you know, womanhood and blackness. Yeah. And 
how that puts people that puts um, people in this group at you know a tremendous risk that tends not to be focused on as much um and so you know at the same time you know 87 people uh went and were arrested uh for felonies for protesting her death outside of the Kentucky Attorney General's um house which uh is interesting they were like they were some of them were standing on his lawn and when the police um told them to leave and they refused um they were charged with um intimidating a participant in a legal proceeding which is a felony and disorderly conduct which is a misdemeanor and criminal trespass and so yeah they were just they just couldn't stand them protesting even a little so they arrested almost 87 people <laughs> that's crazy wow yeah wow and the thing is that this has been you know that's a under normal circumstances arresting almost 90 people um for protesting and charging them with felonies would seem pretty crazy but compared to the tactics that police have been um, using against protesters over the past few weeks that seems like kid gloves <laughs> yeah you know yeah there's this new case which i'm sure a lot of people have probably heard about so far in portland where there are literal secret police rounding up protesters yeah and it's i mean it's as bad as it sounds so trump ordered uh several marshals from uh customs and border patrol to basically invade portland with unmarked vehicles and limited patches on their actual uniforms just like basic ass police patches mm -hmm. And they base they were basically driving around, arresting protesters, in these unmarked vans, and detaining them without even announcing that they were law enforcement, mm -hmm. and you know hauling them off without even telling them what the charges are. There was one case, and this is according to the Business Insider. There was this one case, um, where there is this twenty uh, nine year old demonstrator, who was detained by these secret police officers. And at first he wasn't sure if they were police or far-right extremists. Yeah. Which you is know, terrifying. They wore, yeah. <laughs> like they wore green military fatigues with police patches, patches that just like say police. Don't, don't say what agency they're from. Not a lot of official legitimacy mm -hmm. on display. He was not told why he was arrested. He was not told what charges there were against him and he didn't even know who it was that had detained him mm -hmm. and he wasn't he wasn't read his miranda rights until um he had already been taken to a federal courthouse yeah and he wasn't doing anything illegal like he was not he was not hurting anybody he was not vandalizing any property he was just peacefully protesting yeah and these people on orders from the president of the united states arrested him for peacefully protesting and he and trump is claiming that these secret police that he sent in did a fantastic job and he's suggesting sending them to other major u.s cities mm -hmm. he's claiming that he did this because the mayor of portland and the governor of oregon were not doing anything to quell these protests and to protect 
like property from being vandalized. And look, I don't endorse vandalism, but the punishment for vandalism should not be getting hauled off by the goddamn secret police. Yeah. That is not a level of force that is warranted. Yeah. And ultimately, like, ultimately, crimes are charged against individuals. And this has been this has been something that I feel like has been obscured. I mean, even in my own mind, as I think about the police response to these protests, right? Like, you don't just have a protest of peaceful individuals, you know, 1% of the people there do something illegal or violent and you, and you, you know, tie a rope around all the protesters and arrest them all at once because, you know, a couple protesters did something bad. The reality is that you charge individuals for crimes. Yet one Berkeley law professor put it this way, quote, arrests require probable cause that a federal crime has been committed. That is a specific information indicating that a person likely committed a federal offense or fair probability that the the person committed a federal offense. This is obviously in the case of, you know, arrests by federal officers. If agents are grabbing people because they may have been involved in protests, that's not probable cause. And yeah, the idea that we should be, that we should be so scared of these protesters that we should be okay giving up our rights is a trend that you see like before like fascist takeovers all the time and is real like is really worrying and we shouldn't be giving into that right like this is a time when we need to be holding on to our rights of probable cause um habeas corpus due process like more than ever right every single person arrested should be you know should have a record of that arrest be provided a record of that arrest they should have they should be read their Miranda rights, um, provided charges that they're actually, you know, that the reason that they're arrested for, notified of their probable cause. All of these things that we expect from our law enforcement, from the fair administration of justice in our society, we should be holding on to those more than ever. And it should not be an excuse that there are just too many people to arrest. We have talked a lot about how Trump has been showing more authoritarian tendencies in line with fascism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've said from the beginning is that as it stands, we at least have a system of checks and balances in the United States. So I've, I've told people that even though I do call Donald Trump a fascist, that I'm not necessarily arguing that we're about to become like Nazi Germany or, or Italy uh, during World War II yeah. or Mussolini Italy, um, because we do have those checks and balances in place. But the problem is that is becoming more and more eroded. People mm-hmm. are people in power. Other people in power are supporting this. Even the judicial branch, which is meant to be the ultimate check on the power of our legislative and executive branches. So in New York, in New York State, um, you know, at the beginning of June, 200 people um, were arrested and on their behalf a writ of habeas corpus was submitted to a federal judge in New York. And what that is, is um, a writ that requires them to be charged or with a crime and arraigned or released. And in most states, including New York, the law requires that 
the person be brought before a judge within 24 hours of their arrest. That, if you've ever watched like, you know, CSI or Law and Order, it's like, oh, we can hold him for 24 hours and then we have to arraign him or let him go. And that's what that is. It's, it's enshrined in the Constitution that we have a right to be apprised of our legal position um, and either arraigned or released. And these people in New York were, had their right of habeas corpus, 200 people just suspended. The, the, the New York Supreme Court Justice James Burke ruled that, that um, the coronavirus and the mass protests were reason enough to just exceed the 24-hour holding period with no, with no indication of, of what, the, what the new maximum should be, right? He just said, all, what he said was, the writ is denied, all writs are denied. That was it. Just immediate suspension of habeas corpus in New York. Yeah. Terrifying. That judge needs to needs to resign. That's that's blatantly uh, yeah. unconstitutional. Honestly, I I I always I, I I always even had a problem with the fact that you can hold people for twenty four hours without charging them. Like I think that's messed up yeah. to begin with. But the fact that the fact that you would take even that away is just unforgivable. Absolutely unforgivable. Yeah. Any judge that makes a authoritarian decision like that does not deserve a job in the judicial branch. It's insane. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments. Ass Hat of, of the, the week. week. Or should we say this week, Ass Hats. Yes, yes. Uh, we have two lucky winners of mm. our Ass Hat of the Week, both of which are GOP senators. Hey, good company. <laughs> yep. We have Senator Marco Rubio and Senator Dan Sullivan. And the reason why we're doubling up with them is because they basically did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, the same <laughs> asshat move. <laughs> yeah. And we'll have some caveats on this, but as many of you probably know, this week America lost one of their one of its civil rights heroes. Uh, John Lewis who was a lawmaker from Georgia who marched with Martin Luther King and was a hero during the civil rights movement, unfortunately passed away at the age of 80. And a lot of people all around the country were honoring him. Except Marco Rubio and Dan Sullivan, who attempted to honor him, <laughs> attempted to honor him by posting pictures of them, like, with him, except... Or so they, they thought. <laughs> they, they weren't pictures with him. They were pictures with uh, Elijah Cummings. Another African-American <laughs> representative. Yeah. Yeah. Who is also relatively recently deceased. So a couple of caveats. Like, obviously, <laughs> yeah. obviously, we don't think these guys intended this. You know, it's not like they... We're trying to do like a last dig or something like that. That would be horrible. And yeah. we don't think that. It's yeah. also probably not even true that they pressed the send button. Yeah, on this absolutely. Kind of thing. You know, they, like what I think probably happened is that each of them went to their staff and were like, hey, here's a message. You know, here's a message that I typed up that I want you to post on my social media. Find, her, find a picture of me with John Lewis and then post that. Yeah. That's probably what happened. However, this is so messed up. Seriously. And the fact that so they both levels. did it. 
Yeah, they both did it. And like, like first off, there is kind of the, you know, racist microaggression of all black people look alike. Yeah, um, maybe a macroaggression at this scale. <laughs> but uh, this is just embarrassing. So, like, again, I I don't think they did this on purpose, obviously. And I I don't think it was necessarily malicious. And they both apologized for it. Uh, I'm sure that as soon as they saw it, they shit their pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, they might not be the type of heinous individuals that normally win this award, but this was just too blatant and embarrassing to not just publicly shame them. Exactly. Even briefly. But there is a bright spot. People... Um, posted a bunch of pictures of Republican congressmen on Twitter and tagged Marco Rubio in them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit of a reprieve. So yeah. anyway, congratulations to Marky Mark Rubio and Dan Sullivan for being our Ass Hats of, of the Week. week. So for this next segment, it's going to be you know, a little bit of a diversion, talking a little bit about the economy and monetary policy, specifically cash and coinage. And so what kind of incited this was I was driving through um, rural Virginia yesterday, and I stopped to get gas and a water. And, you know, I, I go into this gas station, and on the door, there's a sign that says they'll only accept exact change or the use of a credit or debit card. And they, they say this is due to a national coin shortage. And my first thought was, like, who cares? And, <laughs> and my second thought was, we still use coins? <laughs> <laughs> but apparently, like, this is a big thing. Like, it is, it's affecting stores and chains all across the U.S., including big ones like Walmart and Kroger. Um, and... Like there is a special task force being convened on like called the U.S. Coin Task Force to try to put together proposals to address what the Federal Reserve has called an emergency. Um, yeah, Jeremy Powell has referred has basically explained this by saying the flow of coins through the economy kind of stopped. Yeah. Well, no one uses them. I mean. <laughs> well, the big thing here is is I think that like they they're not actually really sure what happened exactly but there are a few hypotheses like like that coin heavy businesses are being are like shut down right now due to coronavirus so like you know if you're you're not going to go to the laundromat as much and use a bunch of quarters which yeah. takes those quarters out of circulation and leaves them in your your house or in cash um and another another potential is that people who normally turn their coins into cash at coin machines and banks just aren't doing this they're just holding on to it and waiting to, for the pandemic to break another is yeah. that people are actually using it as like a savings method they're like you know the coins you pull out of your pocket and put in your jar like that's that's like a way of hoarding yeah. additional money yeah. um and on top I mean, of that I, I have a coin jar downstairs yeah me too i should probably turn it in cuz some banks are yeah. actually paying extra for coins right now Really? Um, yeah, paying oh. more than the value. Really? Um, I, yeah, and on top I, of that, I'll have to look into that. <laughs> yeah, and on top of that, the mint, 
um, that makes coins slowed down production um, due to coronavirus in March and April. So at this point, we're staring down the barrel of a coinage shortage, which means that places like Walmart and gas stations are either refusing to provide change or sometimes giving change in the form of things like loyalty cards. Like you get a little 35 cent gift card to Walmart, which seems not cool because you're basically turning that as a, as a corporation, you're turning that change that you're providing to them into money that can only be spent at your store. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, it's like a really weird and silly thing. Um, but, but one with huge economic impacts and it got me thinking about whether we even should have change in cash in the first place, like whether it makes more sense to move towards something like a cashless economy. Um, and so we wanted to kind of talk through some of the benefits and drawbacks of that idea. Yeah. I, I, I spent some time reading about this. I found this really interesting article, uh, from the balance, which kind of laid out the benefits and disadvantages mm-hmm. of it. And I kind of felt like the article was trying to convince me that it was more beneficial than, than like bad. Um, like a cashless economy is more beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. That a cashless economy would be more beneficial, but I mean, I mean if you know, other people can read it, come to your own conclusion with that. But sure. honestly, it kind of made me think, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm okay with that. Interesting. Like Interesting. I, I don't think I'm okay with a cashless society. Like I, I'm okay with a coinless society. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we're getting to the point where I, I don't remember the last time I used coins to pay for anything. And every mm-hmm. single time I have used coins to pay for something, I always feel like a dick. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm just giving people extra stuff to count and I'm spending more time and the people are counting stuff out and the people in the line are just like, seriously, you're one of those guys. (laughs) Um, So I'm okay with that. But some of the things that I think really convinced me that that it's not a good idea, or at least currently it's not a good idea. Like I do have a defeasibility test. I absolutely have a defeasibility test. But there's the concern about personal data. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that every if we have a cashless society, so what that means is that uh, a lot of people pay for things using using debit cards or credit cards. And I mean, most of my transactions are used using debit and credit cards as well, and that's fine. However, this means that every single transaction that you have financial transaction you have has a digital paper paper trail totally and you know i i guess this this is probably that that kind of hit my civil libertarian side (laughs) creeps you out a little bit yeah i i'm not sure that i want us to have a society where the only way that you can ever pay for something is when there is some type of digital paper trail and at the same time that makes me think, like, who owns that data? I mean, mm-hmm. we know that our data already is heavily being traded to companies so that they can specifically micro-target us with creepy ads that pop up for, like, a new brand of shoes because you just talked to your wife the other day, like, hey, I'm thinking of getting some shoes, and then, oh, <laughs> what the hell? Um, it's the creepy oh, shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, 
it kind of it kind of puts you in a situation where you can very easily become penniless mm-hmm. like in a in, in in a situation so like if your phone runs out of battery and you primarily pay for stuff using like apple wallet yeah suddenly you're without any money and without any access to it yeah so i at the end of the day i think that this isn't something that i'm that i'm okay with at this point yeah so michael what are your thoughts yeah i think i think that makes sense to me i think to me like i understand why we'd want to have some cash and i understand why we'd want to have like the ability to get some and use some like in a world where all ATMs went away and you could never just get cash. Like it seems like that would cut down on your flexibility a lot. Um, but, but ultimately I go back and forth cause, cause I feel like we're not, re- we're not there yet. Yeah. Um, but I don't think there's any reason necessarily why we couldn't get there. So to me, the solution yeah. focuses on enablement rather than like, like a hard fast stop that we like need cash. Um, cause ultimately cash is fake anyway, right? Like it's just paper yeah. and some coins. And we, we think that because we all agree that it is worth something, it's worth something. Um, yeah. but that doesn't require a physical thing to me. The biggest concerns are about, um, the underprivileged and, and the, like, um, about equality because, you know, Currently, there's an estimated 8.2% of households that are unbanked, which means that they don't have any access to um, a bank account of any kind. And then 20% are underbanked, so they don't have multiple kinds of bank accounts. Um, and so, so that means that, you know, there isn't, they don't even have a debit card in many cases. And yeah. so, and and if we're moving towards a place where things are largely on mobile payment and lots of places, you know, move towards a position where they only accept mobile payment. That also requires that you have a phone, a smartphone even that connects to the internet. And so that makes you dependent on, um, you know, phone network providers, um, and things like that. And so, you know, I feel like fundamentally we, I, I would not want an economy where your access to, the very fundamentals of trade is dependent on relationships with third parties like banks and like, um, and like mobile phone companies. Um, also it like, it can cost money because doing digital financial transactions are conducted over a network. So MasterCard and Visa are both networks that conduct, um, credit and debit transactions. And those cost, money for the business. So there's a reason why like some, some businesses are cash only, especially small mom and pop shops. Um, like, I don't know if you've ever been to a gas station and they're like, or, or a small store and they say, you know, they have a minimum purchase amount for you to be able to use a credit card. Um, and that's because it, they have a flat fee plus a rate in order to, um, just run a transaction. And so there's like, there's a skimming element, which just isn't in play when you have cash. So there are definitely some concerns. I do want to mention some of the, the pros though, because ultimately when I was first thinking about this, I was like, why, why on earth would we move in this direction? You know, like 
what are the what are really are the benefits that could possibly make this worthwhile to compensate for a reduction in um, flexibility and access to money? And so, I so the the interesting thing is that the benefits seem pretty big, but I don't think they're big enough to outweigh the far, the potential far-reaching costs. And so, so one of the ones which kind of caught me by surprise is that but makes a lot of intuitive sense is that physical money is a component of a lot of crime. And so when you take away physical money, you pretty much take away the incentive to do those crimes. So if you think about like mugging, you know, there's literally no point to mug someone if they don't have cash, because as soon as you take their credit cards, they can just have their credit cards paused and you can't use them. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so in like in 2017, there were an estimated 320,000 robberies. Um, in the U.S., and that led to about $438 million in losses. And so, like, that would just go to zero. Yeah. Um, potentially compensated by other kinds of fraud, that, but th- those already exist in our economy. Um, and, then, and then, like, the theft of cash from retailers is another huge cost to our economy. So, you know, people just taking money from different small businesses and retailers adds up to about $40 billion dollars. Um, and so one study in Missouri, actually, you know, it's hard to kind of measure this crime impact because there's no place in the U S that is, you know, cashless, but in Missouri crime dropped by about 10% according to one study when they switched from welfare benefits being provided in cash to electronic programs like EBT. Um, that's pretty massive. It's pretty big. That's pretty big. Um, and another thing is money laundering, which like, is something that isn't, I mean, it's on my radar because of work, but not on my radar as like a citizen. But money laundering is the process of taking cash that was used in a criminal enterprise, often drug trafficking um, or something like that, and putting it through legitimate sources like, um, you know, cash-only businesses and things like that to clean it. And then you can use it without being worried that it'll be traced back to a crime. Obviously, that's way easier with cash than it is with digital currency. And so the Treasury estimates that it's that money laundering accounts for about $300 billion annually. Um, and, and one thing that, you know, if you're a private citizen, you're probably not on your radar at all, is that money laundering is often, is like one of the most significant and pretty much the exclusive source of funding terrorism throughout the world. If you don't launder money, you know, it gets cut off from terrorist organizations. And so, like, terrorist organizations are very active in, finding, like, financing their enterprises via laundered money from criminal enterprises. Um, and so, again, like, it's, it's the exact inverse of the, of the problem of, that you called out, Nathan, of being able to track the digital paper trail. It's the benefit yeah. side of having perfectly trackable money. Yeah. And, and I definitely understand that. And I definitely do see all of those as advantages, but I would need to be convinced that it wouldn't violate the privacy of yeah. law-abiding citizens. And I would also need to be convinced that we didn't have a case like, you know, what the, um, what the NSA is currently doing in the United States, yeah. where they're monitoring everything that we do, which, mm-hmm. you know, through the passage of the Patriot Act. So another concern that I have, and, and this... This is one important example that I immediately thought of when I saw this. 
which is the susceptibility to hacking. Yeah. So the fact that someone could potentially hack money out of your account. And what that made me kind of think about was the parallels between cashless societies and the switch from uh, paper voting to electronic voting. Mm -hmm. So I remember in Virginia when I was, when I was really young, I remember when um, voting was mainly done by paper and then pretty quickly and for quite a while, it was done through voting machines. I actually remember being really young and going into the voting machine with my dad during the, uh, the 2000 election and being really excited about it. Like, cause I was in a voting machine, mm-hmm. um, you know, and dad Nerd. was kind of showing me <laughs> and dad was showing me the whole process, but election recently, Virginia, <laughs> recently Virginia has moved back to, um, to paper ballots. And the yeah. reason for that is because the voting machines are more susceptible to that hacking, but you can't hack paper. So it just makes it more reliable. So one of the concerns that I have is what if we start making that transition, those hackers end up uh, becoming a lot more prominent and creating a significantly less secure financial system. And then we just have to move back to paper anyway. So maybe, maybe it's, you know, maybe I'm comparing apples to oranges, but that was the parallel that I saw when I was, when I was researching this. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'd say you're probably comparing apples to grapples, not quite oranges, <laughs> but, but like, you know, but I think that's a, like a very worthy concern, um, especially because, you know, for most of us, our financial security is one of the main things we work towards for our whole lives. You know, like yeah. that's the main project of, of um, our like, w- like life in the economic sphere. And so it's, it's really important to be able to protect ourselves. Um, I'd say a couple things like one, it's, it's definitely less irredeemable than voting because ultimately if someone, so ultimately it's not anonymized, right? So like if, if, if we retained a great record of everybody that voted and how they voted, if there was some election fraud, you could feasibly be able to track that down, parse it out and correct it. But because we intentionally don't retain those records, we can't do that. But in the case of money in like a bank account, um, you can always go back and refund them that money. So like if, if today you have a fraudster steal money from your account, you can call your bank, say this transaction was fraud, and they'll give you your money back. Now, you know, if to your point, somehow we got to a place where our financial system was insecure enough that someone was able to steal like, hundreds of billions of dollars, there wouldn't be enough money necessarily to be able to refund everybody. Um, But at this point, you know, like as I look at the number of unbanked, you know, we got 8% of people that are unbanked in the U S that means that 92% of people are banked. And I don't know how, what proportion, but a large proportion of those are banked online. And so like, I would, I would argue that if we're really worried about the, the security of our financial system, like we're already, we're already in that boat, you know, and fraudsters are constantly figuring out new ways to try to get at our money. And it's, it really is a constant battle, which is, you're right. A cost of the digital system. It's a constant battle to be able to try to fight that. 
that's that's definitely a fair point. Um, I think I think at the end of the day, for me, like I have three primary concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, privacy. Yeah. Number two, uh, people of lower socioeconomic statuses, yep. like depending on how this is implemented, could be screwed over by it. Especially if we're primarily doing a system in which you're paying for things using a phone yeah. that you have to buy in order to be able to participate in financially in society. That is asking a lot yeah. of people with lower socioeconomic statuses. So there would at least need to be some type of program to get those phones to to everybody. You yeah. basically need a universal phone law, <laughs> um, you know in order to really make that viable. And I guess I, my concern is I, I imagine this dystopian society in which the very poor who can't afford that stuff mm-hmm. are always going to be where they are because they can't, they don't have access to money. Yeah. They can't get money because in order to, in order to get the resources in order to obtain money, you have to have money to begin with. Yeah. And that, that is, that's concerning for me. So that's number two. And, and the number three is, um, is still like the concerns over hacking. Although yeah. you did make a really good point about how we're kind of already there. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that, I get, that's less of a concern at this point. But ultimately, if the privacy problem can be addressed the, through some very strict pieces of legislation that limit the scope of the... Uh, the United States surveillance program, then I might I, I might be willing to yeah. to reconsider. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd say another problem is is really rural areas that don't necessarily yeah. have access to the internet and networks. Like without cash, yeah, you like you require the internet in order to be able to exchange, and that's that seems like a pretty tenuous thing. Um, you'd hate to see after a post apocalyptic internet crash, us exchanging rocks and things. That would be silly. <laughs> um, but I th- I'd say, like, ultimately, I agree that the move to a cashless economy right now just doesn't make sense. There are huge yeah. benefits to to increasing the, the proportion of people that, you know, have a bank account. Like, the fact that a lot of people, if they get paid in a check, have to go to a check cashing station that charges them really high fees in order to cash their check. Whereas if they had what is often a free bank account they would just be able to cash their check for free. Like, yeah. that's a pretty big thing. And so I feel like moving towards enabling everyone in our society to have access to all the tools of the financial system is probably the right move, as opposed to trying to prematurely cut off flexibility of the financial system by trying to get rid of cash, even though it's a pretty expensive and kind of crime-riddled thing. So now it's time for the last little segment that we'll bring to you, and that is our highlights. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight is I got to spend some time looking at apartments to Mm. uh, move into. Uh, My wife has recently 
been accepted to a university and we are hoping to uh, live in the area where her university is, which, which is going to be a lot easier for me at least because the classes I'm teaching are primarily going to be online. Uh, so we looked at some apartments and uh, you know, it's, it's nice to dream about having, um, having our own place again. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're really hoping that some of them will, will come through. One apartment was very promising. So hopefully at this time next year, I'll be in that apartment uh, doing this pod with Michael. Awesome. That's super exciting. And congratulations. So what about your highlight? Yeah. Thank you. What about your highlight, Michael? For me, um, it is a couple things, actually. I had a really nice weekend, even though it was pretty, it was pretty busy. Um, my first highlight is that I got to see my best friend, Theo, he's been, he called into this pod from a protest, um, but my wife and I headed down to Richmond to see him for a little bit. Um, my wife had a photo shoot, so we were down there. Um, and we just, you know, hung out in, in the James River and talked, and it just was very cathartic to be able to hang out with somebody, even at a, even at a distance. Um, yeah. So it was just, it was super nice. And then yesterday we went for a lovely hike in the um, Shenandoah National park and that was lovely nice so yeah can't beat staying outside no <laughs> and thank you so much for listening to the perspectrum and you'll hear from us again next week <laughs>